Thinking innovatively is important in business, and for a leading global company like Google, innovating with finesse is what keeps them on top. As Google's former innovation agitator, Alberto Savoia helps already successful companies and entrepreneurs become even more successful by teaching them the techniques they need to become apex innovators. Alberto is the author of The Right It, leading clients towards an innovative idea which, if competently executed, will succeed in the market. He's taught these tools and techniques, what he calls prototyping, to the multitude of Fortune 500 companies, including Nike, McDonald's, and Walmart. Alberto's even taught prototyping to the U.S. Army. Alberto Savoia, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. Pleasure to be here. So I believe you're going to share a passage from your book, The Right It, you know, all about this world of prototyping. This passage essentially explains why I wrote this book in the first place and who it's meant to help and gets us into the context. At this very moment, millions of people around the world are working hard to bring to life new ideas that, when launched, will be successful. Some of these ideas will turn out to be stunning successes and have a major impact on the world and culture the next Google, the next polio vaccine, the next Harry Potter series. Others will be smaller, more personal, but no less meaningful successes. A little neighborhood restaurant that becomes a favorite, a biography that doesn't make the bestseller list, but tells an important story, a local nonprofit that cares for abandoned pets. At this very same moment, many other people are working equally hard to develop ideas that when launched will fail. Some of them will fail spectacularly. Others will be smaller, more private, but no less painful failures a home-based business that never takes off, a children's book that nobody wants to read, a charity for a cause that nobody cares enough about. So if you're currently developing or thinking about developing a new idea or part of a team that's working on a new idea, which group are you in? Or if at this moment you're just still planning, if this idea is just purely something in your mind that you want to do, which group do you think you will be in? Most people believe that they either are or will be in the first group, the group whose ideas will be successful. All they have to do is to work hard and execute well. Unfortunately, we know that that cannot be the case. Most new products, services, business, and initiatives will fail soon after their launch, regardless of how promising they sound, how much their developers committed to them, or how well you execute them. So this is a hard fact for us to accept. We believe that other people fail because they don't know what they're doing. They are losers that have no business being in that business. Somehow we believe that those things do not apply to us or our idea, especially if we've experienced success in the past. Our thinking is, I'm a winner. I was successful. I will be successful again. Frankly, this is how I used to think. I believe I had good reason for my smugness because I, through luck, I had experienced a string of successes with only very few and relatively minor setbacks. Failure was something that afflicted other people. And then, just as I reached new heights of confidence and hubris, the beast of failure wrapped its tentacles around me and beat me in the ass. A hard to ignore and impossible to forget bite on that competent, well-prepared butt of mine. I could lick my wounds or bite back. I decided to bite back. Failure became my nemesis, defeating it my obsession, teaching others how to defeat it became my mission. And this book is part of that mission. So that pretty much sets it up. Everybody wants to launch new ideas. You know, whether it's a business, a book or a nonprofit, everybody thinks that their idea is bound to succeed, but the odds tell us the opposite story. Most of them are bound to fail. And when they fail, not only the developers, you know, the people that have idea pay the price, 
we, the entire world, pays the price because entrepreneurs, ambitious people, are our most valuable resource. You know, innovators, creative people. And if they focus on years to develop the wrong products, we all lose. So I'm here to help make sure that that first step is in the right direction. And that's my mission these days. Yes, just thinking as you were saying, I'm a winner, I was successful, I will be successful again, makes me think of Elon Musk taking on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And as you rightly identify, society at large pays the price because sometimes it's a good idea ahead of its time, or sometimes it can be just that little bit like a better iteration, but it comes a bit too late. So the timing, there's so many factors. And what I love is that you have this scientific methodology. It's very practical, it's very hands-on, and it lets us save the time if we correctly apply it so we can identify the failures and find the one that will land right. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the term. Yeah. The scientific method is not perfect, but it's the best thing that we have, right? So we come up with a hypothesis and we make little experiments to see if our hypotheses are true. And most importantly, we don't fall in love with our ideas prematurely. In the Stanford course that I taught with Professor Tina Selig, we came up with this expression, fall in love with the problem, flirt with the solutions, which means say, if you want to solve, you know, whatever big problem you're after, big or small, stick to that problem, say, I'm going to solve it, but do not fall in love with the first solution that comes to mind, because very likely that's not going to work. And then if you focus on the solution, all your attention goes on that as opposed to the problem. And you try to fit your solution into the problem, even if it's not a good fit. And that pretty much ruins everything. And I imagine there's a lot of real-time adaptation. That's not being fixed, not being so in love with your idea, but also, I guess, you're in love with the problem. And sometimes then you'll find even bigger problems or more important ones hidden under that. Or someone may, you know, nip you to the post and solve that problem, but then you've, you've uncovered something else. That's right. And, you know, we have many examples of that where you, you go in one direction, then you discover that your idea or the problem you're after, there is a better way to solve it. And it's completely different from what you'd originally set up, right? There are m- many examples of products that started in one direction and then ended up being used for a completely different direction. So you have to be very, very flexible. Be focused on your values and the problem that you want to fix and stick to it. Because people say, well, Alberta, you're telling people to quit, right? Quitters never win and winners never quit. And I said, you're right. But the thing is, you stick, you don't quit with the problem, you know, with the thing that you want to solve, but you must be able to quit and give up if the particular solution that you've worked on doesn't seem to give you the results that you want. So fall in love with the problem. Don't give up if you have an important mission. Stick with that, right? And I think when most entrepreneurs fail, it's because they fell in love with their solution instead of the problem. And to set up a little bit of your background, this is not theory. You've tested this out. You were Google's first engineer director, you know, no pressure, right? What did you learn from that experience and what did you bring to the process? Well, so yes, as I write in the book, I learned a lot of Google because I arrived at Google, as I mentioned, with, with a string of successes. So I thought that I, Alberto, you know, I thought I was, you know, the Italian Steve Job, Stefano Giobini as a joke, right? Uh, I thought that the reason I was successful is because I had this uncanny ability to find out, oh, yeah, I can identify the problem. I can build it right. I can do all the steps right. And then I realized that I was just very lucky that my first two startups were successful. The first company that I joined as an early employee, Sun Microsystem, was successful. Luck has a lot to do with it, right? Most new ideas fail in the market, but some of them win. 
flip a coin, maybe you get hit four times in a row. It can happen. So, and those are the most dangerous people and attitude, right? Because they think they've been successful once. And so they build this mythology around themselves. You know, we see a lot of these entrepreneurs, they have one big success in one field and all of a sudden they become experts in everything. And we know that cannot be the case. So I arrived at Google, you know, just full of confidence. And within the first week, I was told two things. I was going into meeting with my passion, thinking, yes, I know how to do it. They said, look, Alberto at Google, we have an expression, data beats opinion, right? So if you have an idea about a product or a feature, bring the data to make your case. And this applied all the way to the top, right? Even to Larry and Sergey. If you think, well, this button should be bigger and blue instead of smaller and green, they say, well, we like it. But if you bring me the data that more people will engage with as you design it, then we will go with it. So that is the first time I heard the expression data bit opinions. And then in a very interesting product management meeting where people try to decide what to build, there are a lot of opinion. Or this person wants to build it small and cheap. The other says, let's make it bigger and expensive. And so there were a lot of opinions thrown around. And more importantly, a lot of fuzziness. And then one person stood up and wrote these words on the board. And honestly, I forget what the product was, but I never forgot, forgot those words. They wrote on the whiteboard, say it with numbers. And immediately, you know, I kind of wrote it down and that became another one of my mantras. So data beats opinion and say it with numbers. So instead of saying, if we do this, 20% of, you know, if you do this, some people will like it and they will actually buy or will engage you try to be specific, say, well, if we build this, 20% of people will buy it you know, for $5.99. And again, I use products because we understand them, right? They're simple, but the same applies to, to nonprofits, to all kinds of causes. My wife works for Habitat for Humanity and they're dealing with exactly the same kind of problems, right? They have limited resources. They think, should we do this initiative or that initiative, right? Should we invest more in person workshop and Zoom meeting? And then you have all of this opinion, but if you express yourself using numbers, then it becomes much easier to do a test and everybody's a much clearer understanding of what we're after. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it because I do want to include in this conversation the discussion of technology, but also technologies and how we can adapt them to our current crises. So we'll talk about that later about climate change. And there's so many problems out there. <laughs> Luckily, right. we have great minds to apply themselves right. to it. So we, I think we need to apply some of that prototyping to many of these challenges. This is a question one of our colleagues, Justin Hayes, who's a senior strategy advisor to the Saudi Central Bank. He wanted me to ask you this. I think the big question on everyone's lips has to be if we are ready for the next version of the metaverse and what lessons should be learned from negative market reaction to meta and lower share price, et cetera. Yeah. So we do not make predictions, right? Just like Socrates said, know that I know nothing. So that's the first thing I tell people. When you come to me, I will tell you, I have absolutely no clue. And as I write in the book, right, I gave you a list of all the bad calls that I made. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think, oh, this is not going to be successful. This will be a huge success and they were a failure. I am terrible. No, I'm as bad as everybody else, including experts, right? So because I understand math and complexity, one of the things that we have to understand is that if it's a complex scenario, and I would say everything in the world is complex, right? A plumber came, was able to diagnose the problem. I trusted that person 100%, right? Because plumbing is simple. Water behaves in unpredictable ways. But when you move to human beings and to complex things like, you know, the environment and climate, it's very, very hard to be an expert. You cannot be an expert, mathematically speaking, right? 
And, and especially when you have experts that come up with conflicting opinions, who do you believe? So the best tool that we have is to come up with hypotheses and then to do small experiments. So what is going to happen with the next version of the web? I do not know. And honestly, nobody else knows, right? We could not have predicted what happened with this version of the web or when the internet was initially started or where the first computer was built. How do we pretend that any of us has any chance of guessing? Some people will guess because they're lucky, right? But that does not matter. So we should do experiments. And I'm a big believer in local experiments, right? So when it comes not to just products, but, you know, to government, to the environment, to people's behavior, do small localized experiments. So you learn quickly and you learn from your failures instead of launching something to the entire world. And then it fails big time and we all pay a huge price. So small bets, small experiments. And also, since you mentioned the psychology of the innovators, I've never been inside those rooms that you're describing but you can get really excited about idea. And statistically, some fail, but many land and they can build it, the market accepts it. There's this other layer of questions because we've just recently had an interview with Dr. Anna Lemke, who's the author of Dopamine Nation. And sometimes there's also the question, just because you can build it, we right. need to put like limitations in place because we've made our technologies addictive or you know it has these wider consequences in society that we haven't thought out. Yes, absolutely. You have an intended consequence as intended side effect. Yes, I'm fully aware of the dopamine effect. While I was waiting for this video to come online, I just had to resist. I said, well, I'm not going to check my email in the meantime. I'm just going to sit here for a couple of minutes and have a moment of zen. But there was definitely a part of my brain that says, come on, what are you doing? Are you actually doing nothing? Which, by the way, sometimes the best thing, sitting quietly, doing nothing, because in Silicon Valley, we have to be completely engaged. No, you finish a project. What are you doing next? Well, maybe sometimes the best next thing to do is to take a breather and really digest everything that has happened. I believe that most of our progress comes from tools, right? It doesn't come from people telling you, oh, it is noble to do this or it's noble to do that. But you create a tool and all of a sudden it changes the culture. So the way that you change culture is you introduce fire and all of a sudden all these things become possible. You know, you introduce Bronze Age and all of a sudden with bronze you can do things. You introduce computers and they completely change things. So I'm a very big believer in tools. And what has the negative or not so positive effect of certain tools, the best way of, of fighting them is actually working with your own mind and your idea, which I think if our mind, our brain worked properly, if we were better balanced, we would not have the problems that we have with the tools or with any of our technology. So after solving the technology problem, I'm working on myself, working on my head. How do we use this technology? Because that tends to be ignored. Exactly. We get so excited. I think it's so thrilling to see these things in the world, not just the prototype, the prototype, but used by millions. I do want to speak a little later about the circular economy because we have to think about resources. That can be difficult with innovators, yeah. <laughs> the novelty seeking. But just to go to, you give workshops, they're the leading companies in the world. You give these prototyping and innovation seminars. Just go through the list of some of your clients. Panasonic, Nike, Ikea, McDonald's, Tesco, Walmart, even the U.S. Army, as you mentioned, Stanford and their Graduate School of Business and Design. You know, what is your approach to adapt your coaching and insights to their needs and mission? Well, so I try to be selective about the companies that I work with. Also, as I write in the book, and as you said, just because you can build it, it doesn't mean that you should build it right. So some ideas are beneath you, right? They're not very good. And some of them are just 
bad, right? So if I could come up with a more addictive product, should I actually do that? So when I work with these companies, most people at most companies, despite of what you see on the outside, they really want to do well, right? People with family, children, parents, grandparents, you know, the general attitude is we want to do something good for the world, right? And so emphasize to them, first of all, make sure that the products that you're building are going to be successful. But more importantly, as you mentioned, think about the consequences. It's going to have a positive impact. And just as you test the market reception of those products, say we launch it and everybody adopts, you should also kind of pay attention to what happens to the people that do adopt it. And I'm finding more and more, I think it has been a big shift in the last decade or so of people being much more conscious and aware of bringing dangerous or addictive technology to the world. And I think that's certainly the case also as we consider the implications of neural wetware or maybe, you know, burning out the retina. I mean, I don't know about you. You're in those rooms and these things are made. Would you have implants? Are you going to wait for the very perfected model? (laughs) Yeah, no, I've reached the point where I think I've had as much technology as I want. And what I'm learning, and I think what all of us learn is that perhaps the less technology I have in my life, you know, the kind of the happier and more (laughs) and more fulfilled I am. You cannot compare a one hour hike with one hour scrolling through Twitter or any of those things. It's just there is no comparison. But, you know, when I was younger, I was super addicted to technology. I'm an engineer. Everything that came up, I get excited. You know, even I like to play music and enjoy playing guitar. And then all of a sudden, they started to bring all this electronic music, which didn't sound as good. And you spent more time on the screen instead of actually making music with a physical instrument, all this virtual instrument. So yeah, I like technology, but I like to put very clear barrier. And for example, I like physical books. Now to me, nothing compares to the pages and the feel of a book. So your concept of prototyping or your intended prototype's predecessor. So it's cheap, it's hyper-local. It's really like a direct field study. So to what extent does this data about the success of your product reliable? In your Stanford seminar, you gave the example of second day sushi. And that's sushi that's like not fresh, that's sold at a discount. And you run this experiment at Koopa Cafe at Stanford and no one buys second day sushi. But I'm thinking like maybe the students at Stanford are wealthier, the experiment is in California and sushi is pretty popular. So maybe people are pickier with the sushi they eat. But if you go to like maybe a less prestigious university in another state, you're a poor college student, maybe second day sushi is successful. So essentially you say think global test local, but to what extent can you rely on your local data to comment on the global success of your product? Well, look, you've played it exactly right. Just because I came up with a hypothesis, right? And I said, you know, 20% of Stanford students will buy second-day sushi at Cooper Cafe on such and such a day, and nobody bought it. I put, you know, black on white, on paper, I said it with number. And you know what you did? You looked at my hypothesis and you criticized it, which is exactly what should happen. I said, well, yes, Albert, it's a local experiment, but, you know, you did it at Stanford, you know, maybe you should do it, I don't know, at some, some other college or maybe another group of people. So what you're doing is exactly what happens and what should happen when you put things very, very clearly on paper. I gave you not a, a, a straw man or a straw dog proposal. I gave you something very concrete and you did exactly what I want people to do. Or perhaps you said, look, Alberta, you know, 50% off is not enough. It has to be 70% off if people risk, you know, stomach trouble. And that is exactly the purpose. So as I explained in the book, you start with a global hypothesis. You can say 20% of people who like sushi but can't afford sushi will buy 
still healthy to eat, but not as fresh sushi. And then you zoom into this micro local hypothesis that you can test locally. And as you do in science, you know, it's, you never make a decision or reach a conclusion based on a single experiment. But the more experiments you do, the more it crystallizes the idea. Also, in a, I don't write it in the book because people, by the way, don't like math. So this was my biggest disappointment, right? I try to use as little math as possible, like fifth grader math. But every formula that you put in the book, right, people just like forget it. Each experiment, there is a very simple mathematical way that you, with each experiment, you increase your confidence level, you know, mathematically. So you say, okay, the Stanford experiment was zero. So we don't increase our confidence. We do it at some other university and it's also zero. So after you do three or four of those and you get zero, maybe it would succeed in some wild scenario, but the likelihood of that happening is very, very small. So just because a single experiment can be argued with, doesn't mean that you shouldn't do this experiment. It means that perhaps you should do more experiment. And if you and I were on the same team of second day sushi, I would say, perfect. Yeah, let's try it in some other place. I hope this answers completely. Yeah, definitely. So in building the right, it it is very data-driven. You're like going out, you're testing, you're creating your own data. Are you saying sort of don't confer with other people about your idea? Is it the problem of getting lost in people's opinions when you do talk to people about it? Or does the process essentially of building the right, it aim to limit other opinions and voices as much as possible in, in the way that you said that Google sort of taught you about, I mean, opinions don't matter, data matters. Is that what this philosophy is sort of backed by? Yes. So it's, it's very important. So the problems happen when people conflate the creative part of the idea, right? This is called the creative process, right? And the validation process. Now, when you're trying to come up with an idea and solution, you explore everybody. You listen to people's opinion. I said, well, Alberto, maybe instead of making second-day sushi, we make one-hour sushi so fresh, you know, and instead of being half the price, it's three times the price, and it comes with fresh wasabi, you know, and a beautiful bento box, whatever it is. So the creative process has to be unrestrained, you know, just like in brainstorming. And in fact, in the Stanford class that I taught called creativity and innovation, we separated the two phases. Creativity is when you take a specific problem and you say, okay, what are the possible solutions to these problems? So in the case of second sushi, the challenge we gave the student is how to reduce food waste, right? And sushi, I said, well, it expires tonight, they throw it away. A lot of people would love to eat it. So in the creative part, you start with a problem and you come up, we actually ask, ask the student come up with 100 different ideas. You know? So it really forces them to be creative. You know, and the first 20 or 30 ideas are easy. Then it, it's a very tough slog. But guess where the greatest and most innovative ideas come? Just when the brains, I don't know, sell sushi for half the price, even if it's about bad. That's when these ideas come out. So during the creative process, you want to listen to opinion. You want to interview the market. You want to know what people want. They say, well, I'd love to eat sushi every day, but I cannot afford it. Right. So that's an input. But then you have to completely shift gears. It's just like right brain and left brain, right? The creative process, right, is right brain, right? Yes. <laughs> and but then you shift to start, okay, this is the idea that we've locked on that we think is creative. Now we must turn our very analytical and rigorous mind, right? So now we stop listening to opinion. Now we go and validate against the market whether it's true or not. So to summarize, both parts are important. It's not that you ignore opinions. You take them into account or you're 
coming up with ideas, but when you need to validate it, you know, let's make an example, right? So I'm inventing a super pen, right? So this pen will write for 50 years. It never dries up, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? It costs $300. Would you buy it? Would you buy it? It doesn't matter, right? I do not trust it. So let's say, yes, I ask 100 people and 70 people say, well, if it lasts forever, this marker, because I'm always using, you know, on a whiteboard, you're tossing away white markers like crazy. Said this one lasts a lifetime. You just dip it in water and it's good for another year. People will tell you, yes, I will buy it. So let's assume that you're an investor, right? Or somebody wants to partner. I come to you and said, all right, I ask 70 people if they would pay $200 for this whiteboard marker that lasts forever. And, you know, 50% of people said, yes, they will buy it. Or I actually went into a store and I said, well, out of 100 people, 10 people actually paid or were willing to give me $200 for it, right? In the end, it's called stated preference versus revealed preference. And one of my favorite examples is like at McDonald's. So if you work at McDonald's, the fast food place, and they go and ask consumers, they come in and said, what item would you like to see more on the menu? So a lot of people said, well, I'm a mom or a dad and, you know, my kids like chicken McNuggets, but I would like something else. So if you had salad, I would order salad. So McDonald's put salad on the menu. And then the same people that said they would order the salad, they come in and they smell the fried food and the good stuff and nobody orders the salad. So it's the difference between a stated preference and a revealed preference. People lie, not intentionally, right? How often in my mind I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go in and I'm going to have, a, I don't know, a, a healthy salad. And then you see, you know, fettuccine Alfredo, whatever. And you say, ah, what the heck with it? I go with it. So that's very important to keep in mind as you validate your ideas. Exactly. Or people, they have an ideal version of themselves as well. And it comes down to, you mentioned about food waste and how seriously we're taking our many resource and climate challenges. And as you describe clinging to an idea, really wanting it to work in the face of it not being achievable or maybe not being ready for market. I was just thinking of Elizabeth Holmes, mm-hmm. who had... I mean, a mania in this way. That's right. So, you know, Theranos is not an example of prototyping. It's an example of fraud, right? <laughs> That's not fake it before you make it. They just like lie from the beginning. So I'm not here to second guess what other people did. But in that case, they discovered the desirability of a product that can do blood tests with a simple drop of blood. So they determine that the market is interested in that product. And then their focus should have been to say, look, clearly we know that if we build it, it will work, it will succeed. Now we have to also make sure that we can build it. Now, I think Theranos is, is interesting because it's one of those very few categories where the feasibility of the idea, meaning can we actually build it, was in question, right? But 99% of all ideas and all products, there is no question that you can build it, right? If you have an idea for an app or a book, or a movie, or a new company, or a restaurant, there's no question that you can build it, right? It's not a problem of feasibility. It's a problem of desirability. Yeah. And when one has so many ideas, and you're really in the hotbed of so many rooms with creative people, also deciding what's the idea to pursue, let's say you're so fortunate to have fairly reasonable access to raising finance. So when you have those kind of competing ideas, what has been your selection process and the teams you've been in to select those ones who you think will be the most successful, but also maybe also contribute to solving important problems or issues? That's right. So you have to know your values, your mission. And if you use that as a guiding light, usually you end up going in the right direction. Now, also, if you take money from other people, if you're a venture capitalist, or even if you go on Kickstarter and people give you money to build something, then you have to commit to building that something, right? 
But there is another scenario, and I do mention it in the book in a short paragraph, where sometimes you as an artist, you know, I've seen your work, you know, you like to make films. Sometimes you just want to do something and you do not care how the market will respond. So there is a difference where you say, look, I am Mia, I want to make a film, a documentary about this because it's very important to me. And either I use my own fund or even if I'm funded by other people, they're funding it not because it will be a blockbuster, but because it tells this important story. So it is very important at the beginning to be clear what your objectives are, your definition of success. So I put on YouTube a series called The Math of Success. And most people ask, how do you define success? And they just wave their hands. You know, I'm Italian, of course, I'm waving my hands a lot anyway, but I also do the math. So how do you define success? And it's very, very fuzzy. I have a very clear definition of success. And that is actual results are better or equal to expected results. So if you want to do a documentary because it tells an important story, your mission, your actual results is to have a well-made documentary that tells a story accurately, you know, and kind of reaches a certain people. And maybe you get lucky, right? And it wins an Oscar and it becomes a blockbuster, but that's, your expectations are set correctly. On the other hand, if you're a movie studio and you make the 400,000, you know, Marvel comics movie, clearly that's not so much, that's just a way that your expectations is that it will earn money. So if you set the expectations right at the beginning, it becomes very easy to determine which project to choose. Yes, and you described the prototyping process, but to understand also you're getting people to commit. You know, people say what they want, but when it comes around to passing the hat, they don't. But in this prototyping process, you can bake that in. You know, you give us the money, then we'll build it. That's right. So there's another expression I say, it's very easy to get people to open their mouths and it's very hard to get them to open their wallets. I mean, and it has happened to me in the, my startup that did not succeed. You know, after two successes, people told me, if you build it, we will buy it. We did our due diligence. Our venture capitalists did all their due diligence. So if you go and look on paper, we did everything right. It's just that we built exactly what we said we were going to build. And then when it actually came time to buy, they said, well, yeah, no, not, not at this moment, you know, whatever the excuse is. So how do you flip that around? So Most market research, and again, we're using product, but this applies to everything. This applies to non-profit. It applies to government initiative, to social initiative. It applies to everything. The goal, the way you approach it is not asking people, if we build it, will you buy it? Or if I build it, will you use it, right? The approach has to be flipped over. If you buy it, we will build it. And that's what prototyping allows you to do because people say, well, How can they buy if I have nothing? So you cannot give them nothing. You cannot just give them the idea because the idea is abstract. You have to create an artifact or something that allows them to reveal their preference and their real interest. So I'll give you the most extreme example of that. And that is Tesla. So when Tesla was planning to build the Model 3, if you remember, they asked people to put down, they announced it, they show what it would look like right? They didn't have the factory yet, but they had to build you know, a billion dollar factory. So they told people, if you're interested, you put down a thousand dollar deposit and you'll get your Tesla Model 3 you know, in, I don't know, in, two or, in two or three years. So when they got, I think in the end it was like 450,000 people put down a thousand dollar deposit. So you had 400, almost half a billion in the bank. Would you say, Mia, that's an indication of serious interest? Yes, I would, safe to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. At that point, I said, look, uh, these people put $1,000 of their hard-earned money on a deposit 
for a car that they will have to wait three years to get. You really must want it, right? So of course, that's an extreme, extreme example, but you have to try to get that attitude and bring it to your own smaller project. How can you get people to really manifest their interest in your idea and give you what I call Yoda? I mentioned at the beginning, data beats opinion, but anything can be made look like data. You can put random number on a spreadsheet that looks like data, or you can take data from other people at other times and use that. So Yoda stands for your own data, right? You must collect data for your specific idea, and that data must come with skin in the game. What is skin in the game? In the Tesla example, it's a $1,000 check, right? If you're building a, if you're thinking of building a nonprofit, perhaps you get people to commit. Look, this is a founder thing. We just need I don't know, $2,000 to get started. If you're really interested, are you willing to commit $20, right? It really, the amount is much less important than the fact that they're willing to give some skin in the game besides their opinion. So remember, if your idea, in order to be successful, based on your definition, needs people, right? People to buy it and people to use it. It's very important to get them to show real commitment and not just promises or opinions. Kaisa here. I'm hopping on this episode with Mia. So far, I can say Alberto's passion and charisma is striking. It flies in his hands. He looks how you might picture someone who's had the title of Google Innovation Agitator. Discerning, low eyebrows with thin lips. You know, if you squint hard enough and flip back and forth between certain pictures on Google Images, he could be Job's Italian cousin, especially with a salt and pepper beard. Alberto sits in front of a blue wallpaper background with blue light bulbs. Among them, a single lit bulb with the right id shining in orange text across it. I'm from the Bay Area, and my dad spent his entire career in the Silicon Valley tech industry. He's failed a lot. He's also been very successful. Silicon Valley is, of course, well known for its competition and big players and high stakes. And as a child surrounded by adults who worked in tech, in a way I felt like I lived a part of this by extension. In Silicon Valley, I've heard professionals say they wouldn't trust other tech people with funds or choose them for a partnership unless they've had a startup that's failed. The logic goes like this. The more you failed, the more experienced you are, the closer you are to success, because you know more now. You're closer to a win. It seems Silicon Valley disproportionately positively values failure. When I told my dad about Alberto's idea of prototyping and building the right it, he was agreeable, sort of nonchalant. But he's worked in Silicon Valley for decades. I wondered if a person in another culture or another industry where failure is not accepted, is not seen as okay, if this concept of first accepting failure at all and then learning to fail quickly and cheaply, if that was novel. Matilda Gimmerd, a writer, interviewed Sophie Dury, a venture program manager at Tamar Capital, who said that in France, trying something and not succeeding can be considered a red flag on a resume and can lead to mistrust. My dad did bring up this concept of an MVP while we were talking. It's popular in startups. An MVP is a minimum viable product, something a product manager calculates. It's the product that will take the least amount of effort to build something valuable that a customer will buy. Then the MVP is released to a select group of people who test it out, and if it's a success, teams add updates and features to the basic model of the project after it's released. An iPhone is a good example of this. My dad said the first iPhone couldn't even copy-paste. They iterated and added updates to this first version. 
The concept of MVPs sounds similar to Alberto's ideas, but I think prototyping comes even before having an MVP. Prototyping tests market demand. Airbnb tested their idea with something like prototyping. The founders experimented with the concept in their own home. In 2007, founders Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia noticed all the hotel rooms in San Francisco were booked up for the local industrial design conference. They decided to open their home to make a little extra cash. They bought a few Airbuds and quickly put up a site called Air Bed and Breakfast. Joe and Brian offered guests a place to sleep and breakfast in the morning for $80 a night. The first Airbnb guests were a 30-year-old Indian man, a 35-year-old woman from Boston, and a 45-year-old father of four from Utah, sleeping on their floor. It was a success, modeled locally, quickly, and cheaply. Prototyping. And now, back to the interview. On a personal level, talking about your Italian heritage, Italy is known for its immeasurable contributions to culture, design, to art. Politics aside, which might be hard to push forward some innovations, it has this wonderful tradition of excellent design thinking. So how do you feel that impacted your choice to become an engineer and how you communicate your ideas and get people behind you? Honestly, I think how does my Italian heritage affect the way I act? I would think first it's passion, right? <laughs> you cannot be fake. I'm not faking this. I'm not just saying, okay, I'm going to get pumped up for me as interviewers. No, it just comes out naturally. And as we've learned, that, that can have a negative side effect, right? Because I can be so passionate about an idea and fool myself, right? I've got to say that the easier person to fool is yourself. So I can fool myself. And then I become so convinced and so in love with my ideas that I know that I can fool unintentionally other people, right? So there, there are some people that have this ability to be passionate. I think with Steve Jobs, they call it the reality distortion field, right? He was great at that, right? It kind of brings people in his reality. You know, he made a lot of great products, but remember also his company Next was not successful. Another product of the Newton, remember that was not successful. So if you have this passion, which is a gift, right? You're able to communicate and get people to buy into it. I would think that's the biggest thing that came from my Italian heritage. In terms of engineering, everything I learned was in Silicon Valley. Yes. Yeah. And as you compare the different climates for innovation, you feel it was just more a welcoming place to get those ideas accelerated. Absolutely. You know, I, I came to the U.S. when I was 17 and my parents separated and I kind of I shipped with my dad who, want, who really wanted to come to the United States. And when I landed in Silicon Valley, I felt I was in, in the right place. So why? Because, you know, I'm a geek at heart and I would say this is like this is a geek kingdom, right? I could just do all my electronic stuff. And so for me, it was a particularly good fit. And I think the combination of the kind of the Italian passion and creativity with the, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurial culture, for me, worked particularly well. It was a, a lot of fun, uh, but also we learned some very hard lessons. And now, you know, with science and technology, you make progress and then you discover all these unintended consequences and then you have to pull back a little. And I think the industry is doing well, right? Some companies are more than other, but I would say most companies, I mean, even Apple, right, was built these super addictive devices, you know, and I'm wearing two of them at the time, <laughs> but it is aware and it's telling me, hey, Alberto, this week you spent, you know, 37% more screen time. Maybe you need to stop it. Or my watch tells me, hey, Alberto, it's been an hour. Maybe you should get up and take a few steps. So I think we're recognizing the damage that some of this technology can do, and companies are trying to ameliorate that. So we have sort of the best of both worlds. 
Yeah, I'm glad that it's being taken seriously. I, mean, I did mention Dr. Anna Lemke. She says that also sometimes we do ignore some of those notifications as well because of the dopamine fix. But I'm glad that you addressed that because being in Silicon Valley, the whole planet has these resource challenges, but in Silicon Valley and other innovation capitals, I'm just wondering how those resource challenges will affect their ability to innovate and the direction and focus of their innovation. I'm thinking, of course, about making some technology consumes a lot of water. And then, of course, the, the heat waves, the wildfires, and, right. and, and different issues like that. Yeah. So I'm in California. We're super aware of water. Before I take a shower, I go in with a bucket and I collect the gallon of water before it warms up. And then I, I water the plant. That's how serious it is here. And as I've said, I've noticed right now this concern with the reusability environmental concerns is pretty much present at every single company I work with, right? It's, it's kind of there in the agenda and people are just doing more than giving lip service to it, right? We still have a long way to go, but you see all the intentions are, are on the right track. I have friends that work in industry for a long time and they decided, well, I'm going to completely recommit to moving from this model of growth at all costs, which a child can tell you, this is not sustainable, right? It's very nice, but we cannot happen. At some point, you, you need to pull back. You need to consider the consequences. So I have friends that have been fully bought in the economic model, you know, GDP growth and everything. And they've come to realize, well, now I forget the names of all the other models and all the other schools, but they're much more focused on say, okay, can we, instead of focusing on growth at all costs, can we focus on these other applications like sustainability and renewability? And in fact, my cousin is one of the founders of the European Institute for Innovation and Sustainability and the biggest clients in the world, right? Because all the big companies all of a sudden care about sustainability. And whether it's because they really care or because they know that the, their consumers want them to care, it is happening. So I think it's a very good thing. Yeah, and I think that some of that design and pre-typing thinking can be applied to this new subscription model of considering the things that one owns, one doesn't have to own. People say that wealth actually derives from use, not possession. And if getting people to invest and think about the long-term use of it, I think that that aligns well with some of the insights you've shared about pre-typing. What are your reflections on the circular economy? I live in a community, it's about 170 homes, and we're all neighbor, we have, a, we have our shared mailing list. And so I'm a big fan of this small experiment. I'm just seeing it happening all the time. You know, I need a 30-foot ladder to go and inspect my roof. I'm not going to go buy it and use it once. So we already have the circular economy and this sharing. If I make too much food, I just post it and ask my neighbors, hey, is anybody interested? in this. So I think that on a small scale, it's already happening and I see it happening much more, right? You go from households where there were, you had four people and you had four cars. So I see much more car sharing. So I think that it's going to happen more and you're absolutely right. You know, we have a lot of stuff that we use only once and I can see it on the small scale that we're learning to share it more. And remember what I said at the beginning, tools are the key, right? So can you make it very easy and frictionless? to say, well, I want to make fresh pasta, right? So I could go and buy a plastic pasta maker that I use once, <laughs> right? And then I never again, and I toss it in the bin. Or wouldn't it be great if with very little friction, I could just ask my neighbor, hey, can I borrow a pasta maker for one day? And what you see, because I'm lucky to work in a community where I've known my neighbors for a long time, it is already happening, but I can see why it would be more difficult in big cities or in places where people do not communicate. So how do you create this communities because once the community exists just like a tool right 
once you have the community, these behaviors actually happen naturally, right? And if you go and look at how human beings evolve as tribes, right, a small number of people, you know, there's much more sharing and people are much more careful with their actions. You know, they want to share because then they can share back. So that is why I think the importance of doing things in the small and then think, okay, but how do we scale it up in a large way? But you always have to start small and see if you can actually export it. Exactly. Your your principle of fail quickly and cheaply. Can we go a little bit over? Yeah, absolutely. I'm having fun. Are you having fun? I am having fun. So tell me, how do you become an alpha product manager? I know you draw a lot on lessons from game theory. You've done your homework on me. Yeah, that's my new stuff. So alpha is a term borrowed from investing. So an alpha investment strategy is a strategy that has higher returns than a regular investment. So if you take the S&P 500, a safe investment, alpha will have better return than the S&P 500. And also means alpha is the first thing. So operating from first principle. As we know, in product management, the success rate is pretty dismal, right? Depending on the industry and type of products is 10, 20, 30%, which means most new products fail. So in alpha product manager, nobody can achieve 100% success, but they try to achieve better returns. So if in the industry-wide, it's 20% for a particular industry, they try to be at least two or three times that. And how do you become an alpha product manager? Well, you make alpha bets. And you know the video that I'm working on now, it's called Product, product Poker. It's a, what can product manager learn from poker players? And you know what poker players do very well, the good ones, they don't play every hand. They know and they use a little math. So, and that I, I keep emphasizing, you know, most, most people do not like math, but if you can do two plus two, you have enough to do it. They don't play every hand. They're very careful with their bets. So an alpha product manager makes bets. In a sense, it is a game. You're betting on a product that the product will resonate with the market. And we know that most bets do not succeed. And some of them succeed wildly. So I teach you how to make alpha bets, which are bets that have a much higher than average return. And the way we do it is by pre-tapping the idea, collecting data, and exploring multiple ideas that solve the same problem. Remember, you, you can still be fixed on the same problem, like minimizing food waste. There are many, many solutions that you can have, right? Some of them will work, some of them will not. Some of them will have work fantastically, other than will work just minimally. And through the process of prototyping, you can systematically winnow them down to the one that are most likely to succeed. You implemented the Google ads, and that's a huge market experiment. I don't know what you can reveal about it, but what were important elements that you included in that design process? Yeah. So first of all, look, as much as I would love to take the credit, it was a big team and I was fortunate to brought in as the director that managed the team, right? And also I would like to say the idea of attaching ads to searches, anybody could have had it. In fact, it was the most obvious thing. Just like, you know, in television, if you watch a car race, then it makes sense to have ads about cars. So I think the challenge there, I mean, the reason it was so successful is because innovations and new ideas, they compound, they build one upon the other, right? So the reason why ads was so successful for Google is because search was so successful for Google. So when you have search and you have billions of people coming in every day, maybe every hour and searching all kinds of things, you have this treasure trove of data. And more importantly, guess what? If you have billion searches per day, you know how many experiments can you run? Countless, right? And so Google is very famous for doing a lot of A-B experiments. That's how we collect the data. 
you think if we make the ads, let's say, short and long, they will be more effectively than if we make them tall and long. Well, how do we know which one will work better? You can do a lot of experiments. So what actually enabled Google to be so successful and to grow is this mental attitude, which, by the way, is the same one that Amazon and some of these really successful technology companies have of doing a lot of experiments on small samples and continually refining their data based on that. And if, if you do that, it doesn't require any cleverness. And you wanted to talk about AI, you know, it kind of goes automatically into AI because the algorithm becomes pretty easy. Try different button sizes. And if this one is more successful, focus on that one and maybe try some variations on that. And eventually you come up with the optimal button size or whatever. So if you have a lot of data, you could learn. Imagine if you could live your life 100 times, you know, a thousand times that you have all of these decision points. You do not have that luxury. But if you're dealing with a lot of people, you can do those experiments. And that's why these companies are successful. The sad thing or what happens is the companies that do not operate in that way, that do not try to operate on data and do all of these experiments, those are the ones that are left behind. Innovation is experimentation. That's another quote I like to mention. It just boggles the mind because these calculations can be done at such speeds that my slow brain can't calculate at the level that we were approaching the singularity. I, I don't know what your estimations are for that, 2045 maybe. You know, what I'm interested in AI is it's sometimes described as assistive intelligence. Like there's a need for it to be fundamentally aligned with the purpose of the people and not the purpose of the technologists. So in your mind, what are some of the governance regulations and preparations we should have in place to help ensure that we get the future we want? I don't think anybody is an expert on that. But what we know from AI, and what's obvious is that even think about human intelligence, the way we think, our priorities, our values, our actions are all based on our input data, right? Of everything that has happened to us, you know, in our life. And guess what? AI, any way you program it, is going to have to be exposed to a set of data. It doesn't come out of the blue. So the response of the AI, kind of this consciousness you build, will necessarily be built on the experience and on the data that you feed it. And how do you choose that? You have this world of data, all, all kind of very logical, very scientific and all crazy things on the internet. All the AI can do is just like our human brain. If you're exposed to this, you will get a certain results. So I think that is the biggest challenge that we have for the AI. What data are we going to feed it? Yes, of course, there's implications for the future of work. And as you consider AI and our AI co-creators and other cutting edge technologies, what do you imagine is our future of work and where will we find our sense of meaning and self-worth and esteem when it is predicted that so many of our vocations can be replaced by machines? Yeah, I don't know. Did you get a chance to play with DALI and all of this technology? Not yet. You know, I still do oil painting, so I'm, I have one foot in, yes. <laughs> I, I love painting. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very bad at it, but it is very impressive. You can see some computer-generated art that is visually stunning and, you know, it's meaningful. And of course, we bring our own meaning to it. But I can say, you know, any image in the Dali style, and it just gives you that. So it is going to present a challenge. And honestly, Mia, part of my personality is that I know you're asking about predictions, but I, I cannot make a prediction, right? Because I know I'm so bad at it. You know, as I like to say, I'm no Nostradamus and I'm not an expert. And I don't believe actually anybody can be an expert. So here's my thing. If you have to quote me, if the subject matter is complex, and I mean that both in a mathematical and a colloquial way, predictions 
are impossible. And anybody that claims to make predictions or that claims expertise, and it's not a matter of plumbing, you have to be very suspicious about. Yeah, of course. You're suspicious. You just work with the data and what one has in front of you. Sometimes you can extrapolate some things. So you're working now on a new book? I have this trilogy in mind. So first, I focus my life on building things right. So as an engineer, I just it has to work. And then what I've learned is that for myself and my colleagues in over many, many years, sometimes we build them right, but they're the wrong thing to build because nobody uses them. So I shifted my focus to making sure that we build the right thing because kind of building it right is something that we've nailed. But then what is the next problem? And I think we hinted at it throughout this conversation. The challenge is not coming up with new technology, right? The challenge is how do we humans adapt to this technology, put it to a good use? And right now, so I've gone from hardware and software. Right now, I'm most interested in you know what some people call wetware, right? <laughs> how our brain works, because all of these ideas that you see behind me on the screen, where do they come up from, right? They come up from my head. And if you look at how your thought processes work, you know, they, sometimes they just seem to pop up, right? And sometimes they're good ideas, sometimes they're bad ideas, and then that end up making yourself and other people miserable. So my next title after the write it, you know, I may not write it because that's a bigger subject, maybe bigger than, than I can handle is the right you. So the write it is about making sure that you have product market fit. Don't build a product or a service that the market is not interested in because you waste your time as an entrepreneur. You know, you just waste one of our most valuable resources. The next one is like the person world or person reality fit, which I think is very important, especially these days. I think what all this technology has shown us, especially here with the pandemic, with Twitter, with with Facebook, I don't think it's so much that the technology has changed us, more that it kind of reveal what's going on in our mind. And I think it's a very experiment. In fact, I do this all the time, right? So I use Twitter, you know, that's how I relax. I want to spend 15 minutes on Twitter, see what's going on. And I love it when somebody posts something, say, you know, I'm just making this up. So-and-so donates $100 million to breast cancer research. And I said, okay, I want to see how many replies before somebody finds some issue with that and what that particular issue is. So it has become so predictable. It's become a way to look into our collective psyche. And some people just feel this need to express their opinion. And basically, I cannot think of any single thing that anybody could write. And I'm using Twitter just as one of the many examples of social media that could write, that you don't get all kind of feedback. Great idea, terrible idea. So I think it's been like, you know, for Galileo with the telescope, it kind of allows us to see into our collective mind. And I think it makes us realize more than ever, right? Because we live in our little enclosures and our friends are selected and we know who we're dealing with. Now it kind of opens the world to see what billions of people think about what they think like, and it is at once very scary, but also very illuminating, you know, and I'm all about facing the reality. This is really how some people think. And why do people think some ways? It's because the sum of their experiences led them to think that way. And so if you have two people with very different experiences, they're going to have different conclusions. And as we've seen, trying to merge them is very difficult. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And if we're not clear in our mind, you know, if we're really biased, we fall in love, right? 
we don't just fall in love with our idea. We fall in love with our beliefs, with our conviction. This is important. This person is good. This person is bad. And then it becomes very, very hard to have an argument. So I must say, on one hand, these have been the most difficult years for us individually and as a planet, but also the most illuminating here years. So we were really a period of change. So some days it's terrifying. Some days it's very illuminating because finally we have the data in front of us. You could not cure infectious diseases until you had a microscope, until you could actually see, oh, this is what's happening at the cellular level. So similarly, I think what the tools that we have developed for communicating with each other have given us an ability to look at what is actually happening, what is inside our minds. Yes, I was very intrigued by this. And I, you're prototyping it to me, to us. I want to read that book because I think that, as you say, the entrepreneurial lessons, the engineering lessons can be applied. There's a large audience for that, you know, among entrepreneurs. But this wider book, this wider idea of redesigning your life, of also questioning, as you say, in these last few years, those of us who could take it and have that moment of self-reflection and look into that mirror, you were able to use it for growth. But so often we don't really question it. We're born, it's an accident of geography. And I thought about this prototyping because I was wondering, you know, how many marriages, well, we, the divorce rate and all this, how many marriages, well, if they were accurately prototyped, also testing the community you're in, the city you're in, is that the best for you? Because you were born into it in your faith. And I thought about matchmakers. I thought people think it's not romantic, but I thought this is an old fashioned way of prototyping. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think exactly the same thought. In fact, one of my favorite stories is my daughter used to live in Berkeley in a two-bedroom apartment. And she thought, well, you know, I would like to move to San Francisco, but I would have a much smaller place because it's more expensive. So, of course, she knows about prototyping because she's lived with that. So she said, I'm going to prototype living in a one-bedroom apartment. So even though she had a two-bedroom apartment with her boyfriend, they lock one of the rooms. So they pretend that, say, can we manage with a smaller apartment? And so they did that experiment and then it worked successfully. And the same thing, she moved in San Francisco. She's a minimalist. So she now decided, well, you know, I don't know exactly the square footage, but boy, 400 square foot is a hell of a lot. <laughs> you know, can I do 300 square feet? So she kind of blocked areas. She said, well, for 300 square feet, I can live in a part of town that I like the most. And you're absolutely right. When it comes to marriage and dating and these things, it doesn't sound romantic, but it's the same thing with ideas. You fall in love with your sol solution. And then if it doesn't work astray, it's not the same. So before you marry somebody, at least go on a few dates. And since you brought in that analogy, what happens with ideas is that people have an idea and they don't take it out on a few dates. One of my early readers, because when I was at Google, I wrote the first book. I gave myself one week to write it to see if people would be interested in it. And it's been translated in a dozen languages. So I know, okay, they're interested. I should invest in the right book. But most people do not go through that step. One of the readers of my first book, he wrote to me and said, Alberto, I had this idea for a diaper business, all right? <laughs> An environmental diaper business. And I so believed in it and I went into it. And then I realized that, you know, and it was working well, but I said, I hate being in the diaper business. I'm not even a parent. You know, what made me think that I would want to do it? So I said, you know, when you prototype an idea, you don't test how the idea will work in the market. You also feel how you would love working on that idea. You know, I would love to have an Italian restaurant, but I know the reality of working in a restaurant. 
right? So the dream and the romance when it comes to the actual world is very, very different. Before you make a long-term commitment, it's good to do experiments. Exactly, to know what that end game is. And you really helped open our eyes to it with this infectious enthusiasm. So as you think about the future and education, the challenges we face and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, you know, what teachers were important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I try not to have gurus. You know, if I think about who's had the most impact in my life, it's people whose name nobody would know. They were there to give the right advice at the right time. When I was young, I read all the biographies and tried to emulate this person or that person. And then I realized a lot of these people are successful, I would say more by luck. And sometimes if I go and look at some of the people, I know smarter people than the people that worked at Google or started Google that worked on products that were not successful. So sometimes you're in the right place at the right time with the right idea and you use data. So I cannot say I have any specific guru. I will mention one person, one author that actually makes, made me think a lot about how we interpret luck. And that's Nassim Taleb, who wrote Fooled by Randomness and Anti-Fragile. And he's very good at teaching us why essentially we're fooled by randomness. Somebody works at the right company or has the right idea. And then we think that this person has all the answers. And what I've learned, and he keeps repeating, is that nobody really has all the answers and there really cannot be any expert in a complex field. You know, with long-term thinking, your best bet is to do short-term experiments and trust the data. Exactly. It's very hard. I think if you go back into the Renaissance or something, it was possible to have these real polymaths, but there's so much to master now. And this is what you are an expert at. I think getting a good team around you to build on their collective intelligence. And you really helped us understand that. So thank you, Alberto Savoia, for your important insights into innovation, harnessing luck, engineering, entrepreneurship, creativity, and your methodology of identifying the right it that helps us implement our ambitions and dreams. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me, Mia. It was a lot of fun and uh, very useful. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk and Kaisa Ketaforce with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Kaisa Ketaforce. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenboth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope to enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibition, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.